This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the middle of February. And we're going to start on the 17th of February in 1943 and a Russian officer, that's Major Kampov's report, on the German route in the Gorson salient of central Ukraine, which is very topical perhaps for this year. All that evening, the Germans had been in a kind of hysterical condition. The few remaining cows in the village were slaughtered and eaten with a sort of cannibal frenzy. When a barrel of pickled cabbage was discovered in one hut, it led to wild scrambles. Altogether, they had been very short of food ever since the encirclement, with the German army in constant retreat, and they didn't have large stores anywhere near the front line. So these troops at Corson had been living mostly by looting the local population. They had done so even before the encirclement. They'd also had a lot to drink that night, but the fires started by the U-2s and then the bombing and the shelling sobered them up. Driven out of their warm huts, they had to abandon Shandorovka. They flocked into the ravines near the village and then took the desperate decision to break through early in the morning. They had almost no tanks left. They'd all been lost and abandoned during the previous day's fighting and what few tanks they still had now had no petrol. In the last few days, the area where they were concentrated was so small that transport planes could no longer bring them anything. Even before, few of the transport planes reached them, and sometimes the cargoes of food and petrol and munitions were dropped on our lines. So that morning, they formed themselves into two marching columns, about 14,000 in each, and they marched in this way to Lysyanka, where the two ravines met. Lysyanka was beyond our front line, inside the corridor. The German divisions on the other side were trying to batter their way eastward, but now the corridor was so wide they hadn't much chance. They were a strange sight, these two German columns that tried to break out of the encirclement. Each of them was like an enormous mob. The spearhead and the flanks were formed by the SS men of the Wallonia Brigade and the Viking Division on their pearl-grey uniforms. They were in a relatively good state of physique. Then, inside the triangle, marched the rabble of the ordinary German infantry, very much more down at heel. Right in the middle of this, a small select nucleus was formed by the officers. These also looked relatively well fed, so they moved westward along two parallel ravines. They had started out soon after four in the morning while it was still completely dark. We knew the direction from which they were coming. We had prepared five lines, two lines of infantry, then a line of artillery, and then two more lines where the tanks and cavalry lay in wait. We let them pass through the first three lines without firing a shot. The Germans, believing that they had dodged us and had now broken through all our defences, burst into frantic, jubilant screaming, firing their pistols and tommy guns into the air as they marched on. They had now emerged from the ravines and reached open country. Then it happened. It was about six o'clock in the morning. Our tanks and our cavalry suddenly appeared and rushed straight into the thick of the two columns. What happened then is hard to describe. The Germans ran in all directions, and for the next four hours our tanks raced up and down the plain, crushing them by the hundred. 
Our cavalry, competing with the tanks, chased them through the ravines where it was hard for tanks to pursue them. Most of the time, the tanks were not using their guns lest they hit their own cavalry. Hundreds and hundreds of cavalry were hacking at them with their sabres and massacred the Fritzes as no one had ever been massacred by cavalry before. There was no time to take prisoners. It was a kind of carnage that nothing could stop till it was all over. In a small area, over 20,000 Germans were killed. I'd been in Stalingrad, but never had I seen such concentrated slaughter as in the fields and ravines of that small bit of country. By 9am, it was all over. 8,000 prisoners surrendered that day. Nearly all of them had run a long distance away from the main scene of the slaughter. They'd been hiding in woods and ravines. We will return to World War II later, but first we go back to 1502 and Amerigo Vespucci's report from January and February of that year as he reports on discovering South America on his second voyage to the New World. Vespucci reached the coast of Brazil and sailed as far south as the Rio de la Plata, which he was the first European to discover. This land is very pleasing, full of an infinite number of very tall trees which never lose their leaves and throughout the year are fragrant with the sweetest aromas and yield an endless supply of fruits, many of which are good to taste and conducive to bodily health. The fields produce many herbs and flowers and most delicious and wholesome roots. Sometimes I was so wonderstruck by the fragrant smells of the herbs and flowers and the savour of the fruits and the roots that I fancied myself near the terrestrial paradise. What shall we say of the multitude of birds and their plumes and colours and singing and their numbers and their beauty? I am unwilling to enlarge upon this description because I doubt if I would be believed. What should I tell of the multitude of wild animals, the abundance of pumas, of panthers, of wild cats, not like those of Spain, but of the Antipodes, and of so many wolves, red deer, monkeys and felines, marmosets of many kinds, and many large snakes? We saw so many other animals that I believe so many species could not have entered Noah's Ark. We saw many wild hogs, wild goats, stags and does, hares and rabbits, but of domestic animals, not one. Let us come to rational animals. We found the whole land inhabited by people entirely naked, the men like the women without any covering of their shame. Their bodies are very agile and well-proportioned, of light colour with long hair and little or no beard. I strove a great deal to understand their conduct and customs. For 27 days I ate and slept among them, and what I learned about them is as follows. Having no laws and no religious faith, they live according to nature. They understand nothing of the immortality of the soul. There is no possession of private property among them, for everything is in common. They have no boundaries of kingdom or province. They have no king, nor do they obey anyone. Each one is his own master. There is no administration of justice, which is unnecessary to them, because in their code no one rules. They live in communal dwellings built in the fashion of very large cabins. For people who have no iron indeed, any metal, one can call their cabins truly miraculous houses. For I have seen habitations which are 220 paces long and 30 wide, ingeniously fabricated, and in one of these houses dwelt five or six hundred persons. 
They sleep in nets woven out of cotton, going to bed in mid-air with no other coverture. They eat squatting upon the ground. Their food is very good. An endless quantity of fish, a great abundance of sour cherries, shrimps, oysters, lobsters, crabs, and many other produce of the sea. The meat which they eat must u- most usually is what they may call human flesh a la mode. When they can get it, they eat other meat of animals or birds, but they do not lay hold of many for they have no dogs, and the country is a very thick jungle full of ferocious wild beasts. For this reason they are not wont to penetrate the jungle except in large parties. The men have a custom of piercing their lips and cheeks and setting in these perforations ornaments of bone or stone and do not suppose them small ones. Most of them have at least three holes and some seven and sometime in which they set ornament of green and white alabaster half a palm in length and as thick as a Catalonian plum. This pagan custom is beyond description. They say they do this to make themselves look more fierce In short, it is a brutal business. Their marriages are not with one woman only, but they mate with whom they desire and without much ceremony. I know a man who had ten women. He was jealous of them, and if it happened that one of them was guilty, he punished her and sent her away. They're a very procreative people. They do not have heirs because they do not have private property. When their children, that is, the females, are of age to procreate, the first who seduces one has to act as her father, in place of the nearest relative. After they are thus violated, they marry. The women do not make any ceremony over childbirth, as do ours, but they eat all kinds of food and wash themselves up to the very time of delivery and scarcely feel any pain in parturition. They are a people of great longevity, for according to their way of attributing issue, they had known many men who had four generations of descendants, They do not know how to compute time in days, months and years, but reckon time by lunar months. When they wished to demonstrate something involving time, they did it by placing pebbles, one for each lunar month. I found a man of advanced age who indicated to me with pebbles that he had seen 1,700 lunar months, which I judged to be 132 years, counting 13 moons to the year. They are also a warlike people and very cruel to their own kind. All their weapons and the blows they strike are, as Petrarch says, committed to the wind, for they use bows and arrows, darts and stones. They use no shields for the body, but go into battle naked. They have no discipline in the conduct of their wars, except they do what their old men advise. When they fight, they slaughter mercilessly. Those who remain on the field bury all the dead of their own side, but cut up and eat the bodies of their enemies. Those whom they seize... As prisoners, they take for slaves to their habitations. If women sleep with a male prisoner and he is virile, they marry him with their daughters. At certain times, when a diabolical frenzy comes over them, they invite their kindred and the whole tribe, and they set before them a mother and with all the children she has, and with certain ceremonies they kill them with arrow shots and eat them. They do the same thing to the above-mentioned slaves and to the children born of them. This is assuredly so, for we found in their homes human flesh hung up to smoke, and much of it. We purchased from them ten creatures, male as well as female, which they were deliberating upon for the sacrifice, or better to say, the crime. Much as we reprove them, I do not know that they amended themselves. 
That which made me the more astonished at their wars and cruelty was that I could not understand from them why they made war upon each other, considering that they held no private property or sovereignty of empire and kingdoms and did not know any such thing as lust for possession, that is pillaging or a desire to rule, which appears to me to be the causes of wars and of every disorderly act. When we requested them to state the cause, they did not know how to give any other cause than that this curse upon them began in ancient times and they sought to avenge the deaths of their forefathers. Well, we now change the tone completely and have two reports from 1976 and the Daily Telegraph. The first from February the 16th. Die poured on the Tate bricks. The Tate Gallery refused to disclose last night how much it had paid for a pile of 120 firebricks which have twice been displayed as a work of modern art. The bricks are locked away in a storeroom. When on display, they are laid end-to-end in two decks to form an oblong. Carl Andre, the American artist responsible, calls them low sculpture. He first created the design in 1965 in America, where he put them on sale for about £4,000. No one bought them, but in 1972, officials of the Tate saw a photograph of the bricks and offered to buy them. By this time, the sculptor had sold the bricks back to the yard from which he had bought them, and the yard had closed down. But Mr Andre brought another 120 bricks, crated them up and sent them to the Tate with assembly instructions. Sir Norman Reed, director of the Tate, said last night, We consider it a work of art. I'm very glad that a piece of modern art should get publicity in a newspaper. We're always trying hard to get into the news. I can't say how much we've paid for it because it's not our policy to disclose prices. It has been on show twice, but we're strictly limited on space, so it has to take its turn. The situation will be improved when we get our new building opened next year. Well, we move on eight days to February the 24th and Nicholas Comfort reports Blue dye was poured over the Tate Gallery's controversial sculpture of 120 firebricks yesterday and the man who claimed responsibility said bystanders had clapped and applauded him. The Tate immediately withdrew the bricks from show for an indefinite period. Sir Norman Reed, director of the gallery, said the dye would wash off. But, he added... They won't be back on show for some little time. If people are going to behave like this, it would be better to give it a slight rest. Last night, a 27-year-old chef, Mr Peter Stoll Phillips of Bromfield Road, Clapham, claimed responsibility. He's an amateur painter and said he'd been enraged at the exhibit, both on artistic grounds and because he was a taxpayer. He'd taken a small bottle of vegetable dye, which he had been told was indelible, and emptied the contents over the sculpture. The people standing around all clapped and applauded me and patted me on the back, except for two old ladies who said, You are a silly person, and went off to fetch somebody. On the 14th of February 1945, the bombing of Dresden, reported by Margaret Freer, Dresden, noted as one of the world's most beautiful cities, the Florence on the Elbe, was almost completely destroyed during the 13th and 14th of February 1945 by 800 British and American aircraft. Margaret Freyer writes, I stood by the entrance and waited until no flames came licking in. Then I quickly slipped through and out into the street. I had my suitcase in one hand and was wearing a white fur coat, which by now was 
anything but white. I also wore boots and long trousers. Those boots had been a lucky choice, it turned out. Because of the flying sparks and the firestorm, I couldn't see anything at first. A witch's cauldron was waiting for me out there. No street, only rubble, nearly a metre high, glass, girders, stones, craters. I tried to get rid of the sparks by constantly patting them off my coat. It was useless. I stopped doing it, stumbled, and someone behind me called out, Take your coat off, it started to burn. In the pervading extreme heat, I hadn't even noticed. I took off the coat and dropped it. Next to me, a woman was screaming continually, my den's burning down, my den's burning down, and dancing in the street. As I go on, I can still hear her screaming, but I don't see her again. I run, I stumble, anywhere. I don't even know where I am anymore. I've lost all sense of direction because all I can see is three steps ahead. Suddenly I fall into a big hole, a bomb crater about six metres wide and two metres deep, and I end up down there lying on top of three women. I shake them by their clothes and start to scream at them, telling them they must get out of here, but they don't move anymore. I believe I was severely shocked by this incident. I seem to have lost all emotional feeling. Quickly, I climbed across the women, pulled my suitcase after me, and crawled on all fours out of the crater. To my left, I suddenly see a woman. I can see her to this day and shall never forget it. She carols a bundle in her arms. It's a baby. She runs, she falls, and the child flies in an arc into the fire. It's only my eyes which take this in. I myself feel nothing. The woman remains lying on the ground completely still. Why? What for? I don't know. I just stumble on. The firestorm is incredible. There are calls for help and screams from somewhere, but all around is one single inferno. I hold another wet handkerchief in front of my mouth. My hands and my face are burning. It feels as if the skin is hanging down in strips. On my right, I see a big, burnt-out shop where lots of people are standing. I join them but think, no, I can't stay here either. This place is completely surrounded by fire. I leave all these people behind and stumble on. Where to? But every time, towards those places where it is dark, in case there is no fire there. I have no conception of what the street actually looked like, but it is especially from those dark patches that the people came, come who wring their hands and cry the same thing over and over again. You can't carry on there. We've just come from there. Everything is burning there. Wherever and to whomsoever I turn, always that same answer. In front of me is something that might be a street filled with a hellish rain of sparks which look like enormous rings of fire when they hit the ground. I have no choice. I must go through. I press another wet handkerchief to my mouth and almost get through. But I fall and I'm convinced that I cannot go on. It's hot. Hot! My hands are burning like fire. I just drop my suitcase. I'm past caring and too weak. At least... There's nothing to lug around with me anymore. I stumbled on towards where it was dark. Suddenly I saw people again right in front of me. They scream and gesticulate with their hands. And then, to my utter horror and amazement, I see how one after the other, they simply seem to let themselves drop to the ground. I had a feeling that they were being shot, but my mind could not understand what was really happening. Today I know that these unfortunate people were the victims of lack of oxygen. They fainted and then burnt to cinders. 
I fall then, stumbling over a fallen woman, and as I lie right next to her, I see how her clothes are burning away. Insane fear grips me, and from then on, I repeat one simple sentence to myself continuously. I don't want to burn to death. No, no burning. I don't want to burn. Once more, I fall down and feel that I am not going to be able to get up again. But the fear of being burnt pulls me to my feet, crawling, stumbling, my last handkerchief pressed to my mouth. I do not know how many people I fell over. I knew only one feeling, that I must not burn. Then my handkerchiefs are all finished. It's dreadfully hot. I can't go on and I remain lying on the ground. Suddenly a soldier appears in front of me. I wave and wave again. He comes over to me and I whisper into his ear. My voice has almost gone. Please take me with you. I don't want to burn. But that soldier was much too weak himself to lift me to my feet. He laid my two arms crosswise over my breast and stumbled on across me. I followed him with my eyes until he disappears somewhere in the darkness. I try once more to get to my feet. I can only manage to crawl forward on all fours. I can still feel my body. I know I'm still alive. Suddenly, I'm standing up. But there's something wrong. Everything seems so far away, and I can't hear or see properly anymore. As I found out later, like all the others, I was suffering from lack of oxygen. I must have stumbled forwards roughly ten paces when I all at once inhaled fresh air. There's a breeze! I take another breath, inhale deeply, and my sense is clear. In front of me is a broken tree. As I rush towards it, I know that I have been saved, but I'm unaware that the park is the Burgervisor. I walk on a little and discover a car. I'm pleased and decide to spend the night in it. The car is full of suitcases and boxes, but I find enough room on the rear seat to squeeze in. Another stroke of good luck for me is that the car's windows are all broken and I have to keep awake, putting out the sparks which drifted in. I don't know how long I sat there when a hand suddenly descended on my shoulder and a man's voice said, Hello, you must get out of there. I got such a fright because obviously someone was determined to force me away from my safe hiding place. I said with great fear in my voice, Please, allow me to stay here. I'll give you all the money I've got on me. If I think about this now, it almost sounds like a joke. But the answer I got was, no, I don't want your money. The car is on fire. Good God. I leapt out immediately and could see that we indeed, all four tyres were burning. I hadn't noticed because of the tremendous heat. Now I looked at the man and recognised him as the soldier had put my arms across my chest. When I asked him, he confirmed it. Then he started to weep. He continued to stroke my back, mumbling words about bravery. Russian campaign, but this here, this is hell. I don't grasp his meaning and offer him a cigarette. We walk on a little way and discover two crouching figures. They were two men, one a railwayman who was crying because in the smoke and debris he could not find his way to his home. The other was a civilian who had escaped from a cellar together with 60 people but had had to leave his wife and children behind due to some dreadful circumstances. All three men were crying now, but I just stood there, incapable of a single tear. It was as if I was watching a film. We spent half the night together, sitting on the ground, too exhausted even to carry on a conversation. The continuous explosions didn't bother us, but the hollow cries for help which came continuously from all directions were gruesome. Towards six o'clock in the morning, we parted. I spent all the daylight hours which followed in the town searching for my fiancé. I looked for him among the dead because hardly any living beings were to be seen anywhere. 
What I saw is so horrific that I shall hardly be able to describe it. Dead. Dead. Dead everywhere. Some completely black like charcoal, others completely untouched, lying as if they were asleep. Women in aprons, women with children sitting in the prams as if they had just nodded off. Many women, many young girls, many small children, soldiers who were only identified as such by the metal buckles on their belts, almost all of them naked. Some clinging to each other in groups as if they were clawing at each other. From some of the debris poked arms, heads, legs, shattered skulls. The static water tanks were filled up to the top with dead human beings with large pieces of masonry lying on top of that again. Most people looked as if they had been inflated with large yellow and brown stains on their bodies. People whose clothes were still glowing. I think I was incapable of absorbing the meaning of this cruelty anymore, for there were also so many little babies, terribly mutilated, and all the people lying so close together that it looked as if someone had put them down there, street by street, deliberately. I then went through the Grosser Garten, and there is one thing I did realise. I was aware that I had constantly to brush hands away from me, hands which belonged to people who wanted me to take them with me, hands which clung to me, but I was much too weak to lift anyone up. My mind took all this in vaguely, as if seen through a veil. In fact, I was in such a state that I did not realise that there was a third attack on Dresden. Late that afternoon I collapsed in the Ostra Alley, where two men took me to a friend who lived on the outskirts of the city. I asked for a mirror and did not recognise myself any more. My face was a mass of blisters, so were my hands. My eyes were narrow slits and puffed up. My whole body was covered in little black pitted marks. I cannot understand to this day how I contracted these marks because I was wearing a pair of long trousers and a jacket. Possibly the fire sparks ate their way through my clothing. of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.